0: Disclaimer. No data subjects were harmed in the making of this podcast.
1: Welcome to the Privacy Bar and Bands podcast. We make privacy awareness simple. Seat back, relax, and grab your darkest privacy myths and
0: misconceptions. Your mind-boggling experience begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
1: You so oh, have...
2: <laughs> anyway, so I? am so, next.
1: <laughs> next question, next, next. Hello, hello, everybody, hello world. Um, welcome to another episode of the Privacy Bound Band's podcast. Um, and we're here again, recording again. We <laughs> hope that you have missed us the way that we have missed you. <laughs> but um. <laughs> welcome to the podcast um again today and it's another exciting episode we have someone who we have been looking forward to having really on the podcast time. for a very really long, a long time. time i'm sure to lack what she myself i think in the original list of episodes that we actually had planned for the podcast we had an episode that was actually specifically for her but we just i i don't know why do you know what the funny thing is because we're always trying to do things like in order so we didn't, like, reach out to everyone at once. We were kind of going, like, one by one. And, like, so then we finally made it. And then when we reached out, uh, we, we for a while, we, there was no communication between both sides and everything. And then eventually we got there. And then now we, we're here, basically. And it's it's really nice to have Patricia here with us. Uh, just a little bit of an introduction, uh, just before we go in and we, we let her speak for herself. <laughs> um, oh, Patricia is a data protection Uh, We have with us on the podcast, first of all, Patricia Boshi, Dr. Patricia Boshi. Patricia, I'm not sure if I said that right, but please forgive me. I should have actually clarified how to say your name properly before we No, it's
0: quite correct.
1: Um, Yay. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Patricia is a data protection consultant and researcher and trainer at the University of Passau. Um, she holds a PhD in law, so she's she's like us. Also, she has you know the the law aspect to her, but she's also like a data protection person. Um, I think that Olakua and I can both say that we we can relate. Um, and <laughs> she has a, she did her thesis on um, data protection legal reforms in Africa, um, and she has an LLM in IT and telecommunications law. She's also the co-founder and co-director of African Law and Technology Institute, of the African Law and Technology Institute, um, a research institute that's focusing on the interaction between law, technology, and society from an interdisciplinary perspective. So, we have the great honor of having on the podcast today, um, Dr. Patricia. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How are you Thank feeling so to be the founder? So I'm, I'm
0: actually very <laughs> excited because I remember the first time you reached out and it took me some time to respond because i was not um you reached me out uh, uh through linkedin and at that moment i was very yeah. stuck with something else and i wasn't at linkedin for about i think two weeks or something and then i came and found uh i, I saw your message i was like oh my i i hope this girl doesn't feel like i'm undermining her efforts or so I responded Definitely and not. you responded and we planned and at some point we kept on <laughs> replanning. But finally, I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy to be I mean, we're happy here. to have you. Thank
1: you. Yeah, we have so many like, so we have little like podcasts. So it's actually quite exciting. I think every time that we have a new guest on the podcast, uh-huh. I well, for one for sure. I don't yeah. know about you, Dalakpo as well, but I, I always look forward to is the fact that we're going to hear a different voice on the you. other end of the of the podcast, and the fact that we're going to hear new, there's always something new that everybody brings onto the podcast, and there's always one way that we learn. So I'm actually looking to today's episode, and today's episode, which we're keeping a secret for like the next like few minutes, um, is actually one that I think It's required us to even have a pre-recording meeting before we did this episode because it's that interesting um but before we get into like you know all that fun stuff um i just wanted to ask dr patricia how's your week been how is your work in privacy going what's going on in the privacy world on your end
0: uh hey my week is always full of things full of stuff and actually um It's a lot that is going on in the privacy sphere. And I'm I'm sure you know that every day we have, you wake up in the morning, you click on social media and you find something new. If it's not a law, it's a regulation. If not regulation, then AI has come up with something. So it's always exciting. There's always something new to experience, to learn, to share. So my week has been that, interesting. And I'm still learning a few things, not a few things, quite a lot of things I'm still learning because every day is a, is a classroom for me. I open my, my computer, I open my um, a browser and something pops up. I'm like, oh, my, I, I had no idea about this. And it's something that I should have known. So my week has been a learning week, very active and very exciting week at the same time, very exhausting but i'm happy i'm happy how the week went and i'm looking forward for the next
1: and literally i think every privacy person would say that yeah I, weeks mean, weeks I mean i totally that there's
2: always something yeah. a topical new issue or um, a new regulation or a new countries you know if they're reviewing their law or there's a new bill there's just always something or, or litigation cases always something in the privacy world yeah yeah
0: mm, and that's that makes it very interesting yeah. you know uh, uh, area of professional yeah i mean it's somewhere where you 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 don't get bored you can only get exhausted but you don't get bored
1: i think it's even an over (laughs) over information like there's always something coming at you more the absence of stuff there's always something new i think i think it's probably okay we're bringing into our podcast traditions now we want to do a little bit of we don't know i don't know how much of my email you actually read (laughs) um i'm gonna hand over to delacqua to to deal on this one because i feel like i'm the one that gets the the flag for this all the time
2: okay (laughs) i mean it's just it's really simple right on this part of the um episode you just get to share like a privacy feel right um typically a privacy feel story is um a personal experience or something you've read i mean anytime you anything you've seen or any story you've seen or experienced that you just sort of like no they didn't do privacy right or I mean they misinterpreted a privacy best practice or something really related <laughs> to that right so I mean we're inviting to share one with us well
0: um I would rather share an experience I where I was invited um at the office I was invited by a friend in an office and um this person actually is venturing into um, privacy and data protection, sort of training and stuff. So when I enter the office, the first place usually you see is a reception or a place where you, you, you introduce yourself and act, tell why you're there. And I entered there, and the first thing I see is a table without um, things to cover. I don't know how what you call them. Um and there's a lady there sitting, and she asked me uh, how am I and who I'm there to see. And I say, I'm here to see so-and-so. And then she directs me to the office. I see the, uh, the person who invited me. And the first thing I told him is that, you, you know, if I was a data protection and privacy auditor, you would have failed completely <laughs> because I entered the door. The place where everybody is there, the face of your office is quite transparent, beyond transparent. I can see papers on the table. It's a legal office. I can see Mm. planes. I can see, you know, and you say (laughs) you want to explore this area, privacy and data protection. I mean, your front desk, I mean, the opposite of privacy. Actually the opposite. Because if I wanted, I could even take some photos with my phone. Yeah, and I was like, he was like, "Okay, I get it. I'll contact you to help us, you know, reset the office and everything." But it's those are simple things w- w- which people overlook when they set up. Maybe it's an office or a place of work. It, uh, are things that people overlook in terms of privacy and data protection? Practical things that people don't really think about. We think of protecting personal information in computers. Um, social media, but we do not think in our daily life, in our professional life, how does my office look like? How are the documents, my customer or client documents being kept? Those are small things that, you know, we we quite overlook, but are very critical in protecting privacy
2: and personal information. I I mean, Thank you, Patricia. I, I totally Absolutely. agree, I, I I especially in Nigeria, It's actually a thing in Nigeria where you go to an office and, you know, they give you this book at the front desk or reception. and you have to fill in your name, your address, your phone number. And while you're there, sometimes even the details of your, you know, personal computer or any device you're going in with. And I find it really weird. So what I usually do is I, I, I try as much as to not give out anything. I literally will put the country. I'm not gonna give him my address. I'll put the country. I will put my initials. I mean, any way to avoid it. But I mean, this is this is one really amazing point you've raised. Yeah, yeah.
1: and I think you know, I think what struck out with the fact that it's always why yeah. is it always a law office? Yeah,
2: true.
1: <laughs> I think they always think of personal data only in terms of, even when they do think think about it, they think about it mostly in terms of their clients. And, you know, that, that kind of tie between, they don't think of data protection on its own, they mostly think of it in the mm-hmm. context of their confidentiality obligations, which is a problem because there's there's the personal data of your employees, the personal data of guests, there's personal data of every single a person that you know you actively partake in, in or even passively partake in taking their data um yeah. that you have to be conscious about so i think yeah it's actually quite an interesting point you've raised <laughs> uh, yeah. okay second 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 little bonus round just kind of break the ice and you know get the the conversation flowing you anticipation especially for the big reveal that we have coming up <laughs> so i'd like to ask you to kindly um spotlight um a privacy framework of a country or an organization in Africa that you believe everyone should know about or is representative of a big move towards like a much more um consistent or efficient system of data protection protection across Africa. Because I think the reason why we're more specific on Africa as well is because we're a podcast that's focused on that and also the fact that Africa is one of the areas of the world that's currently still... I'm um, struggling a bit to, you know, get onto. Although we're making moves, I just think it's mm-hmm. important to kind of spotlight our wins as well, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, I will go with. Um, I think I'll go with South Africa, the Pop here, yeah, the Protection yeah. of Personal Information Act. I think I like. I like that law. In, my, in, in this is my personal preference. I like that law because when you look at how, for example. Okay, we have those data protection principles, which are almost the same across those countries that have data protection, but then the main controversy in most of data protection uh, laws, not only in Africa, but across is the setting up of the the data protection regulator, who is supposed to be very independent in the discharge of their activities. When you look at South African law, and believe me, I've looked into so many African law, almost all the 34 laws that are there. The South African laws establishes this uh, information regulator in a way that, in the paper at least, shows that this person who is going to be appointed as information regulator is going to have the freedom to oversee the, the, the implementation of the law. He's not appointed by, by, by an executive, per se, like a president or prime minister or the minister of communication. He's being voted by the parliament. His name is been nominated, and then after nominated, being brought to uh, before the parliament and he's been nominated by the parliament. So it's not a single person that who uh, that appoints the uh, information regulator. And so he's not answerable or he's not loyal to one person or a certain uh, ministry. And the second thing is also the removal of the information regulator, uh, the commissioner, is a process that involves not a single person, but a body a, the parliament. Other than that the payment, the salary, the uh, all the benefits are being um, sort of regulated by a labor act, if I'm not mistaken, and not by a certain regulation that is being, will be, or is expected to be issued by the minister. So you can see the system itself allows this person to function uh, independently without being fearfully, or without favoring a certain person, Because no one, as a single person, no one is able to say, I put you there, and so you have to be loyal to me. That Mm -hmm. is one. Um, Mm -hmm. Two, what I like about POPIA is also the fact that the law is very detailed in terms of uh, remuneration, what laws to apply when you have to to, to sort of determine the benefits of the information regulator and its staff. It's also very detailed on, on the appointment procedure, uh, dismissal procedure. It's very detailed about, let's say, uh, who has to be there in terms of qualifications. What kind of qualification is the, the chairperson for information regulation, regulator has to have to be able to be appointed? So it's, for me, in terms of Af- or the laws in African countries that um, my preference or is, is this South African law that I'm happy with it? The only thing that is I'm still very curious about Papua is that it's the only and the only law in Africa I think until this time that not only protect uh, natural persons or not only designate natural persons as as data subjects. But as well as juristic persons, so a company in South Africa is also protected by by, by Popia, not only a natural person. That's 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 very curious for me, and I don't know why, uh, what the reason uh, they decided to have juris- juristic persons as data subjects. But that's the I, I still have to figure that out.
1: I, this is a very interesting one that you have touched on the idea of juristic persons being regarded as data subjects. Um, Thinking about the way that uh, privacy laws themselves originated from the right to privacy, which is directly focused or uh, focused towards, uh, I guess, more human as opposed to uh, natural persons, as opposed to juristic persons. What are some of the challenges that you envision this sort of position, like uh, bringing up in future or, or resulting in in future? Because when you have a juristic person having data protection rights that are well, on the face of it, or originally predicted to be for natural persons. There are bound to be some tensions there.
0: <laughs> I believe one of the things that came across my mind the first time I saw this provision is that. So, how do you draw a balance between company's data and personal data of its, for example, its employees or directors? Um, what I, I what I see or envision in terms of controversy, is when a company, a certain personal information is considered company's data, and then an employee or director of that company comes up and say, no, this is my data because I produced this mm-hmm. data. So I think that is something that may may come up later on. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see because as a company. Company is a company. I'm trying to imagine a, a situation where a company has its own data, I mean, produce its own data, which no individual can claim that that is my making.
1: That's actually, that's actually quite, quite interesting um, because the, the tensions, I guess this is sort of the tensions between um, sort of that creative, intellectual um, ownership of, of data and the right to actually protect data as personal data. So where does the, the data, where does the right of the object of that data begin, as opposed to the the right of the person who created the data sets, um, which I think is even a general, um, I think issue when you start thinking about databases um, as well, and, and privacy rights. I mean, it's been resolved obviously as a clear issue, but I think, one of those things that's still, that is one of the tensions that we saw in that area I mean, as well.
2: I think I particularly also just like the fact that um, Patricia um, mentioned the um, Pope here, right? Because I mean, I've always felt like they are one of like the most active regulators in Africa. They're always, I mean, there's always like a new guideline that's informative or a new advisory, you know, or just um, a new regulation on their part. And I mean, they're just really hands on when it comes to um um new occurrences in the data protection space right so i, I think their their work is quite commendable i mean
0: oh yeah yeah,
2: yeah. i think they they're, they're very, very
0: yeah, i think they're very yeah. very active because and they are they are regulator pansit lapla um advocate i think she's very hands on she's very uh, you know um she understands the tasks yeah. of a regulator and when you speak or when you hear her speaking you you can see that she understands what she's supposed to do as a regulator, and you can see she's able to draw lines between acting as a regulator and acting as an advisor in in in, in the implementation of data protection to controllers. Uh, something that the first time I heard her speaking about really struck me. I never thought of it, but also I think there are other countries uh, in, in Africa that um are very active in this in this area in, in i mean enforcing data protection law coming up with with uh um sort of policies there is kenya there is there is nigeria for example and actually kenya has come up with something that is a bit unique i think last year if i'm not mistaken the regular the commissioner published um a framework of um what do you call it, alternative data, uh, alternative uh, dispute resolution for data yeah. protection, something that is I, not I, I, I
2: um, no, that.
0: very, very common in this area. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's uh, South, Africa, we, Funny, South op- Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, uh, they are in the forefront. Yeah,
1: That's actually very interesting because there was also something you mentioned earlier as well. You said um, about the independence of the of the supervisory authority, I feel like it would be unfair not to mention the fact that we have seen, um, in the past couple of weeks, the UK announced plans to sort of revisit, um, the UK GDPR and Data Protection Act, um, to sort of create a, recreate the office of what we know now as the Information Commissioner's Office, uh, mm-hmm. to then be I think the the Information Commission. Which would then be under the supervision of the Secretary of State, um, which is a very different system to what was initially predicted when you know the office for the regulator was called to be independent mm-hmm. um, so I just thought I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Are you familiar with what's going on in that area and and what do you feel
2: about that
0: well um there are reasons that why why they decided to do that, and this is something that we can see. For example, when we speak of African countries, you will see most commissioners are not sort of created or established as self spending bodies or agencies. They are either under the ministry or they are under a president's office. And even when they are just an office like the Kenyan Data Protection Commission, which is at a separate office, it also um, receives some benefits or budget or financial benefits from, from a ministry. Or you can find a situation where, for example, in Nigeria, for example, they do not have, a, um, they still have the regulation, not a, um, a comprehensive data protection, which they are working on at the moment. But... Uh, the same case in Uganda, you find that the commissioners are being set up under the ICT commissions or ICT regulators. So, uh, not to say or that when, when, yeah, this is not this does not mean that when a, an office is set up under a certain office, that, uh, it may not or it's not independent in terms of functions. It can still be independent, but you know, in the face of it when you see an office is under a certain office, the feeling or the the assumption you have is that that the the upper office has power over the under office. So um, being under a certain office or um, ministry, being under a certain uh, ministry or or a certain office doesn't really uh, negate the independence of that organization or commission there are so many things that you have to look into to determine whether this office is really independent in the context of um, data protection functioning and, and discharging their function their functions and that includes the, the the appointing um authority as i spoke before when i was giving an example for Papia, appointing authority dismissing authority uh, Renumeration and benefits, who determine those things. Those are the things that, even if an yeah. office is self standing and those aspects are controlled by a single person, that office may not be as independent as an office that is under a certain ministry or commission who, whose uh, staff and uh, chairperson is appointed by the parliament, for example. So independence of data protection commissions is not just the structuring of the of the office. There are so many more aspects that one has to consider to be able to say that this office is
1: independent. That's a very fair point to make, Patricia. That's a very, very, very very fair point to make. So independence also has to do with looking at it on a granular level. Okay, Dr. Patricia, you were just mentioning something about, um, uh, you know, uh, some missing aspects of the protection laws in your country that you want to spotlight as well. Can you just let us into that a little bit?
0: Yes. Um. You know, speaking about my country and the pitfalls of the Data Protection Act is a bit difficult because you know, mother country and everything. <laughs> but it is. It is also sad that some of the things in the in the law are not very. Um, how do I say? Update. Up to date. Uh, one of the things that really uh, concerns me is the provisions that allow allows a person a data subject to the right to delete information when it's no longer valid, uh, valid uh, relevant or they just want to delete it they don't want it to be processed anymore and so this uh, this provision grants the uh, a data subject the right to delete but at the same time has a condition to a data controller actually the law doesn't has doesn't have a data controller there's only data um, collector so it, it gives a condition to a data collector who is seen in this law as a data controller to not delete the original copies of data that uh, is to be deleted so my, when I, I look at this section I was Bit confused because I believe the right to be forgotten means to delete every copy of information that is requested to be deleted. That a person wants to be forgotten in that aspect. And so when you uh, when the law gives a condition to data control um, data collector that they should not delete the original copy of the information that is deleted. Um, how do a person get this right to be forgotten? So that is one of the things that I yeah. feel I mean, it is very crucial
1: in this though. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. never be forgotten at this point. Yeah, yeah, that that's quite a dangerous one to be honest. It kind of cancels up. Yeah, out it just the defeats whole the whole purpose. Too. Yeah. Ah, thank you very much. That's actually a really good one. I feel like we've gotten a lot, uh, even more than we thought we would get, which is a sign of a good episode when you have more than you think you would get. Um, just so that I can stop keeping it on the wraps uh, for those listening, uh, on today's episode, we'll be discussing states and surveillance. Particularly, we're talking about democracy, elections, third country interference, and the role of data protection in basically shaping or protecting our democratic rights, basically, as a subject. So um, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Uh, I feel like I'm so excited to have the conversation. I'm excited about the beginning of the conversation. Anyway, um, so let's start uh, on a very on a very light note. Um, okay, so we know th- there's this thing called state surveillance. Then there's this thing called data protection. Um, and then there's this thing called politics. Uh, and then there's this thing called democracy. And then there's this thing called elections.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I like how you're being very well, careful and mentioning each concept. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, do these things sort of fit together? And, and when we then say state surveillance within the context that we have identified, all these key ideologies that we have mentioned... What do we mean by state surveillance in those settings?
0: Well, I guess as Aris said, yetunda, you're very clever. You're trying to avoid the risks of being direct, and you you just (laughs) throw the ball on me so that I can, (laughs) you know, I'll try to go around like you did. So I I believe you wanted to. You want to speak about um, surveillance and uh, uh, data protection in terms of political uh, processes and surveillance that is done um, in a way that influences voters or influences elections. Mm-hmm. Well, to begin with, I think uh, the best example would be the, the, the 2016 U.S. election, which, as we all know, it was tainted with... Um, uh, I don't know what to call it. It was um, <laughs> with allegations that there's an, um, an Asian country that was uh, surveilling and um, uh, launched cyber attacks to um, election infrastructure to be able to undermine democracy. And so the idea, actually, what happened is not just surveillance. There are, there are two things here involved. There is surveillance, that is the first aspect, and there is cyber attacks. So surveillance, what it does is to look into um, behaviors. It's like um, targeted ad- advertisement. You look into behaviors of people uh, on on their online activities because, as you know, most of our political discussions are now taking, uh, taking place on the digital sphere. So you surveil those conversations and discussions, and through that, and uh, using technology, you may be able to determine or to sort of guess where the election is going or who has um, a lot of people on their side. And so if you want to reverse those um, you know, the processes. What you do is you introduce misinformation to influence voters to, you know, vote for someone you think you want to win. So what what, what was done, uh, or what is said to have been done during the twenty sixteen election, is that the the the, the Asian country had um, employed surveillance and the use of, of, of technology to influence voters and to drive political agenda in, in the US. And um, what they did is they used, for example, misinformation, one of the things, it, uh, one of the uh, information that is, was, was, was spread is that one of the Republican candidates uh, had dropped out of the, of the race, which was not true. Uh, that means voters will think that okay, this is this was supposed to be my candidate. So if he's no longer running, then well, I can vote for someone else. So that will affect or will the votes in some uh, somehow. Another thing that they use is the use of deep, deep fake videos, and they will use those showing that a candidate is maybe campaigning. But saying things that obviously the voters wouldn't want to hear, and through those deep fake fake videos, they also spread misinformation, which at the um, at the end of it, they drive or they drove political agenda and they sort of influence the voting process. Another thing they also do, which is okay at the moment, we think we only think that this is. Useful for um, consumers selling their uh, items or services, but the use of um, uh, you know um, targeted ads, for example, you know even in the, mm. the at the moment at the twenty twenty elections because of COVID, a lot of people couldn't go to vote or, or to, to where they could vote physically, so they use vote mobile yeah. apps, voting apps. And so, through these voting apps, they could, using the targeted advertising technique, they could, you know, ascertain preferences of people or voters, and be able to sort of use these and send them ideas. You know, when you, when you, for example, you're searching for some, some goods or some items on 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 the online, and then afterwards you receive some. You know suggestion of similar item they did the same thing like you they know you are about to vote and maybe you want to vote for a candidate a but their intention is to you know uh, inf- influence you to vote for candidate b what they do is using the same technique they use for advertising consumer goods and services they use it to send you you know ads or to send you uh, videos or things that will somehow, it's like a mind trick, will influence you into mm-hmm. moving from candidate A to candidate B. So there's a lot of things that had happened in terms of in, uh, uh-huh. surveillance, but also in terms of cyber attacks. So this cyber attacks is, 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 is another side of what had happened in 2016 in the US elections. It is assumed, or it is alleged that this country the asian country (laughs) you know this is very hard to speak about because you know you don't have to mention things because at the end of the day you don't want to find yourself in trouble so um (laughs) it used uh, cyber attacks to be able to penetrate election infrastructure and by doing so um, was able to access or to view data of uh, voters that were in these uh, databases. Um, and by using or by viewing this data, these hackers could be in a position either to change information of, of voters, and this will also affect uh, sort of election very huge magnitude because if i'm registered as patricia Bosch, i have to vote for let's say i'm in, in kentucky i have to vote there and then you change my information like i'm patricia yeah patricia bosha but i'm I, i'm supposed to vote in los angeles so that means this is a, it's a huge thing in terms of election because one vote
2: is quite a lot right? and i mean I, i'm just i'm just thinking you know right but one thing that comes to mind is there's definitely a problem with regards to you know mm-hmm. these data-driven elections right and i, I think the question i really like mm-hmm. to ask you is in this situation where or in these situations where you know um voters are now being treated like consumers right what data protection challenges do you think that um this poses to um citizens well
0: Data protection and privacy challenges are the same as the ones that are being posed by the use of technology in any other context. But the problem with this, for example, if I take an example of, of, of African region, African countries, is that, for example, uh, in many countries, the water's information includes very sensitive data. You don't have only names and age and the province that you're supposed to be voting you have in some countries you have iris scans you have fingerprints you have things that if the hacker is successfully mm-hmm. get yeah, the information from the voters yeah from from election infrastructure can use such information beyond election disruption you know if i have your Iris can you know, data, I have your fingerprints. I can do so many things that can touch into your financial um, aspects, can touch your personal aspect, employment aspect. I can actually do anything that requires such sensitive information. So that's that's the, the, the downside of it.
1: I just wanted to sort of get into something that you said earlier. So you kind of set up the stage for us for this conversation by Really taking us through all the different avenues uh, through which we can get that sort of third party or third state interference in in elections,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, it sort of screams to me like it's almost like is democracy still alive and the right to vote, how much of it is it still sacred? because if my mind can automatically or can be changed to predispose me to vote a certain way that I don't genuinely want to vote, at what point um, do my choices really matter? It kind of feels like a, I'm, a strings are being pulled behind me and I'm just acting, going accordingly. Like there's a script that we're all just running. But I think more um, more for the sake of this conversation and not the very dystopian um, elements that, that, that this sort of brings to mind, Um, I'm wondering what where does the personal data come in? So let's think in terms of, you've mentioned the data that could be had or could be kept, but what, where, where is the processing? Because then we, we're having a data protection conversation. And we want to know, when we think about data protection, think about the key elements being personal data existing, the concept of the processing that then needs to be processed in accordance with what data protection expects data to be processed as. So where does the, data, the personal data come in? And what is the processing that goes on that ought not to be going on or that ought to be going on in a different way to the way that it is currently being done?
0: Well, in, when you speak in context of uh, elections, and democratic processes, when, for example, in this, in the case of the U.S. Uh, election uh, into twenty sixteen, is that personal data was used for purposes that were not intended, or maybe the voters did not intend for such information to be used in in, in such manner. For example, when they use information to influence, they didn't expect or they, they didn't provide their information so that they can be influenced, politically influenced. So that is beyond the purpose that, uh, for, um, for the data they offered or the data they submitted for purposes of voting, for purposes of political, um, processes.
1: Um, you so also we have a asked, breach of publicly, sort of uh just to kind yeah. of make yeah okay mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. and so uh, another thing you you mentioned is uh if democracy is still there and the fact that being influenced to do something that you originally didn't intend to do but manipulated using technology and misuse of data I would say, yes, it is still there. The fact that you were sort of manipulated doesn't mean that democracy is not there. There are things that can be done, for mm-hmm. example, to maintain or restore, so to speak, uh, democratic values as we know them. For example, let's use misinformation or, dis- or disinformation. There could be some things that can be done to counter uh, counterattack that. For example, I'll give you an example of um, a platform, I'll go back to, to Tanzania, a platform in Tanzania, Jamie Forum, it's called. This platform allows people to share their, or to, to have their civic participation online. They can share anything and everything, about anything and about anybody. But there is something they call it Jami Check. That means you provide information, however you want it to be. And the people behind uh, this platform are working as minions to cross-check and confirm those information. So what you see is that when information is posted, it could have a red tag. If there's a red tag, they did Mm -hmm. not remove that information. They leave it on platform, but they red tagged it. That means that information is false. If the information mm. is blue, I mean green tagged, that information had been verif- verified and is true. If it's yellow, that means that information is 50-50. There are so many techniques that can be used to uh-huh. uh the misinformation and things that can influence people at some extent uh, to be able to, you know, maintain or restore the integrity of information and in- integrity of let's say election
1: well th- this is quite interesting actually because uh, we then wonder why we don't see some of these tactics already been taken up by a lot of the bigger uh social media or firm like social media platforms red flagging so such that and even that's for stuff that is actually being posted by um by data subjects themselves. But then we then even moved to the area of advertising, which was one of the key elements that you introduced earlier
2: mm-hmm. as one of
1: the, the tools used to influence uh, voter pa- voters and their participation in elections. Um, we then wonder why those sort of tactics are also being employed towards the sort of nature of advertisement that goes out, uh, and which was something that I think we can all sort of see Uh, say oh what we one of the things that was highlighted in the run-up to the 2016 elections for the u.s as well or in Mm -hmm. the course of the 2016 elections so what are your feelings about that and what do you think is possibly the explanation is it that there aren't enough minions to cover for Mm -hmm. the larger social media platform or is it just that it's it's a little budgeting issue
0: (laughs) well i I hate to be the devil's advocate, but I don't think that there isn't enough minions to be able to verify and cross-check information. Is that I believe, and this is my personal opinion, I believe that those only social media platforms are not either not motivated or not do not really care. You remember during mm. the 2016 election there, uh, for example, Twitter and Facebook tried to pull down uh, anything that was considered misinformation, false information, damaging information. If they could do that during that time, why can't they Here have it. something that yeah. is sustainable? It's always there to cross-check information and make sure that information that is available in their platform is at least correct to some extent use the same method for example like chomi forum i mean yeah. if you are able to do it why not do it in a sustainable manner because misinformation doesn't only come during election it is something that is built slowly
1: yeah i mean it is something that is doable so it's a, it's, a, it's really a matter of choice here Um. Yeah. I also wanted to add as well in, in in the course of this conversation, we've consistently referred to the 2016 US elections. Now, I'm just curious to say, is this only a US problem? Is it only a Western problem? Is it only a small-scale problem? Is it a large-scale problem? Should we be worried about it? Where where does the box stop, basically? How, how big is the problem of election meddling? And should we all be worried about it on the edge of our seats? <laughs> So now
0: I'll be talking about speculations. So this is not just hmm. the US problem. <laughs> there, there are speculation that the the Asian countries are in a campaign to undermine Western democracy and uh, NATO members' democracy. You know, and this has hmm. not just happened in okay in the US. It happened in the very huge magnitude and you know it's about 21 states that received a cyber attack attempt but in 2017 I think in France in Germany uh, something similar happened so it's not just um, something for the US it's something that is according to speculation attacked is an attack to the western democracy So it is something, as you say, if it is if or not, is something to be worried about, worrying about. I would say yes, whether or not we we are in the Western uh, world, because surveillance and, and cyber attacks are not something for, you know, designated for the Western countries or Asian countries. It is something that can also, and there are, activities that are happening in the African continent. So this is, is, is a global problem, so to speak.
2: I mean, I totally agree. And I, I think I'm, I'm particularly more concerned, you know, um, about Africa, right, because of the, I mean, we're, we, we're, we keep seeing an increase in the way technology is being used to carry out elections. And I mean, this is a good thing, right? but are we paying enough attention to the concerns and the issues that um, that, that may arise from that, right? So I, I think really bringing it to Africa, right, in terms of the data protection laws we have in place, how, And I mean, I'm, I need you to um, I may, maybe cast your mind to what you, when you mentioned earlier about micro targeting rights, do you think the laws we have currently are enough to, or are adequate in terms of being able to, being able to protect the citizens and I, I know about two countries i think kenya and senegal sort of release like guidelines on data and elections right i mean what are your thoughts towards um, these well um
0: you know laws are one thing and their effectiveness and implemented actual implementation is another thing and also at the same time hmm. it is important to look at the problem and see whether this problem can be addressed by a certain law, or regulation. For example, going back to the election problem and surveillance and hacking, we have two distinct problems that calls for two distinct solutions. We have cyber attacks that is related to very sophisticated use of knowledge to hack technological infrastructure. And then we have uh, misinformation that is the use of, I mean, distorting information to be able to yield certain objectives. So, In this case, for example, when we, we talk about cyber attacks and data protection law, maybe we can in, uh, bring in cyber security laws or cyber crime uh, laws. It is a matter of, is this law implementable? Is it practical in terms of um, the circumstances that had happened, for example, in, in the US? And when you talk of, for example, cyber attacks and hacking, there are so many things to consider. The use of technology. What kind of technology are we using? Is this technology vulnerable to hackers? Is it a new technology or an old technology? In, I was listening in one of the Congre- uh, mm-hmm. Congress uh, hearing about the 2016 election. And one of the things that kept coming up is that most of the attacks were, um, which were launched is because the technology that was being used at the mo- at that time was old, and that makes these uh, cyber hat- cyber attacks all oh, much easier. And so at some point, I-, I could hear witnesses witnesses saying that it was even attacked by people who were almost amateurs. So it, it didn't need strong skills to be able to hack these uh, computers or uh, election. Uh, infrastructures because they the infrastructures they had were old. But another thing is that in terms of cyber attacks in Africa in specific is that we received technology from the Western and Asian world. And I remember there was something about computers that were uh, donated to the African Union back then. And then there was some allegations that there were some surveillance being conducted by the country that donated those computers, and that every oh, wow. day in the midnight, the offices of uh, the AU offices in Addis Ababa would automatically be switched on. So <laughs> I don't know about the truth about that oh, allegation, night. but okay. <laughs> I'm. Yeah, I'm trying the point I'm trying to 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 drive here is that if you are a receiver of technology that also puts you in a very vulnerable position that how far sure. can you trust the person who donates those 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 infrastructure or technology in terms of uh, both software and hardware so there are so many things so many dynamics i'm unfortunately I'm, I'm not a computer scientist i cannot speak of the language of how they hack and how how software uh, you know contributes to hacking and things like that but what i know is that a person who owns or, who, or a person who, who donates a soft co- a software or hardware is in a position to be able to put something to 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 to, to access that that uh, technology. Um, another thing is when I you talk totally about data agree. protection laws, and when you talk about, for example, the other aspects, uh, misinformation. How do you control misinformation using data protection laws? I mean, these are things that we have to see. And determine how can we regulate misinformation using data protection law. Does data protection law, for example, says that if you publish um, false information or misleading information, you'll be, uh, you know, liable. If no, then you cannot use data protection to protect to to against misinformation. Again, I'm going back to technical solutions like the one I mentioned. You can have people working, uh, if it's a platform, to try because you cannot say I've succeeded 100% to, uh, you know, uh, deal with misinformation or to to, to submerge misinformation. But we can do the best we can with the the resources we have to be able to bring out uh, misinformation, for example, by tagging like this is true, this is false, this is made up. And things like that. As an example, I gave you of Jumia Forum pra- platform.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's actually really. Those are like really practical things that we can actually be done. But I think very shocking what you said was the fact that even things that are sort of donations need to be looked at with suspicion as well, because um a technology has a way of being. There's a there's a possibility of remote access being granted to these mm-hmm. some of these technologies that are so freely given. Yeah, I
2: mean, we ought to sort of. Yeah, yeah Just to quickly add to what she said, right? I was sort of doing like a short piece or on um, Britain elections, right? And I did discover there are a lot of like the technology being developed for African elections are not even developed by like Africans themselves. I mean, I mean, and this is not such a bad thing, right? But when you think of it <laughs> in the light of like um, receiving technology, I mean, it could be a bit worrisome, right?
0: Oh yeah, it is. For example, I don't want to mention uh, the company, but there has been some speculation that in Uganda, they there's a phone, uh, a phone company that you know um, had a, an agreement with, with, with some African countries, including, for example, Uganda and Nigeria, uh, that supply to supply phones. But there is speculation that these phones have um, how do you call it? tracking, you know, mechanisms. And so if you receive, you know, donation for technology for a very sensitive activity, such as um, elections, you have to be in a position to be able to, and I don't know if that is technically possible, to see or to, to, to sort of scan and see whether there's a possibility of tracking or surveillance a technology within Absolutely. it, yeah. It's 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 not easy. It's not an easy um, question to answer in terms of uh, uh, technology. Adopt uh, you know technology technology that is transferred from one country to the other, and whether such technology can be proved, whether or not it can be used for surveillance. It's it's not a, an easy question to answer.
1: Because I think this is, we kind of have to remember also that, in fact, thinking about data protection generally, data protection sort of invites us to um, take a look at whenever there's uh, the new introduction of new systems, there's a thorough assessment of those systems to make sure that Mm -hmm. they're not at risk of compromising the. The protection of the data subjects whose data has been processed through those devices. I guess you know the, there is, in a sense, that that room for for the role of data protection, to sort of, if taken seriously, to sort of mitigate some of these issues that we have identified um, uh, that you have identified, Patricia. <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: exactly. I think I
0: also think that we we shouldn't overburden data protection laws because there are things that are beyond data protection. For example. Regulating cyber attacks—it's beyond data great. protection. Yeah. Or misinformation is also Absolutely. somehow beyond data protection. There's need to follow. So, I think the African Union came up with the data from a data framework policy, which proposes for a very—I don't know if it's feasible—but a very, uh, a very nice uh, approach to regulating data and data de- and digital uh, in- economy that. Not only there data, uh, data protection commissioner, but they want to have an interplay of different laws that have a, uh, attaching into uh, the use of data. But at the, at the same time, they the, the policy proposes a coordination and cooperation between different you know agencies that deals with data in the data economy because you cannot you know deal with data issues in isolation in this case for example you cannot say okay i'm a data protection commissioner i'm coming in because personal information water in in the voters or in in, in election infrastructure ha- ha- has been compromised what about you come there you will deal with the data breach but there are other aspects that you yeah. cannot address for example cyber attacks then you need a cyber uh, uh, cyber crime act law or regulator and then you have information distor- distortion or inf- misinformation that is another law there are so many things that you know are dealing with data that cannot be addressed with just a single law like data protection law and that that's why I think I really applaud the African Union, the, uh, their proposal for um, you know uh, a major sort of a major of of these of, uh these commissions uh, they propose of data protection you know, i think copyright i think consumer protection in um uh intellectual intellectual right i think i don't remember them quite well but those are, uh agencies that mm. deals with the use of
1: data just a kind of as we're kind of moving gradually towards like a, a good point in the conversation before we start getting into some other things, which I would very much like to talk about that I don't want to take too much of your time. If you if you would release us, or if you don't have any other questions, I think I to them out of my questions. Um, Doctor so Patricia has been so kind and so elaborate in her answers that even questions that I didn't think to ask and the ones that i would have eventually thought to ask she actually answered I them preemptively <laughs> <laughs> so um yes thank you so much for your time today dr patricia it's been such a fantastic time having you on the podcast and we
2: really really I really mean, our expectations this were beyond met
1: it down as well, and it was it, the wait was absolutely worth it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Until next time, yeah, you remains our our lovely DPU and I. Itunde. This episode was sponsored by Ikigai Innovation Initiative.
2: I was brought to you by Tech Hive Advisory. And a big shout out to our executive producer Ridwan the associate producers Dolakwan
1: This podcast was edited by Ayofe Aino. Shout out to her and our podcast associate,
2: Victoria Adaramola, and graphics by Okwe Abujadi.